0: In the latest Scott Thompson Show podcast with me, Rick Samprin, a new poll shows COVID 19 is having a significant toll on our mental health. We'll chat with Randy McCabe from St. Joseph's Healthcare Hamilton. We'll also discuss whether the Canadian Football League should get a big bailout from the federal government. And Ontario's patient ombudsman wants to hear complaints from Ontarians about the long term care system during the COVID 19 pandemic.
1: Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML.
0: We know that mental health, our mental health, is being tested. And we will begin this afternoon with what I think is a very timely poll by the Angus Reid Institute, which basically says, and this is not a surprise, COVID 19 is taking a significant toll on the mental health of Canadians. That's not surprising at all, is it? Randy McCabe is the Clinical Director, Mood, Anxiety, and Seniors Mental Health at St. Joseph's Healthcare Hamilton and joins us now. Randy, good afternoon. Hello, Randy. Hi. There you are. How are you?
2: Good. How are you doing?
0: Not too bad. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, So, as I said, I mean, we shouldn't be surprised that COVID-19 is taking a significant toll on the mental health of Canadians. What have you been seeing? What have you been hearing? What have you been dealing with?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, we're all in this together, and I, I heard someone say a quote that I really, you know, really struck me. We're all in the same storm, but we're each in a different boat, and everybody's boat has different stresses and challenges. Uh, we've seen a lot of change you know, across the society like we've never seen in our lifetime. So there's a lot of uncertainty about what's to come uh, financially with people's health. They're worried about the health of themselves and their loved ones. Um, they may be out of work or, or affected or, as you said, working in a hazard zone. Even the grocery store now, ha- you know, is a place of risk. Um, the, fr- the front lines aren't just in the hospitals. And um, we see people's day to day living, your routines, your work life, your your leisure time has all been turned upside down. So, all of the things that keep us well and mentally healthy, um, you know, it's hard to do those. So, people aren't able to be uh, connecting with loved ones in the same way or close friends or our social connections because of social distancing. We, you know, can't really go out to do our leisure activities because we're doing the social distancing. And those are all things that are mood boosters. Um, we may feel like we're at a loss with our sense of purpose if we're out of work or things have changed or you're trying to balance doing work at home and um, homeschooling your kids, all sorts of different stresses there. Some people um, in their boat are facing huge economic impacts if they're out of work and struggling to pay their rent or mortgage or if they're a small business owner. And um, just overall uncertainty um, because every day information changes so that's another thing that is normal to feel um anxious about or worry about what does the future hold so i think for all of those factors we're seeing um pretty much no one's untouched by this in terms of having some impact on their mental health and well-being
0: this uh, angus reed institute poll shows that half of canadians surveyed reported a worsening of their mental health one in ten reported their mental health has worsened a lot And uh, obviously, the pandemic's impact on jobs, finances, uh, illness, uncertainty, self-isolation, all the things that you just identified are all factors in what we are feeling. What are some of the best and what are some of the worst things that people can do during this pandemic?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, one of the really cool things that I've been seeing and that has made international news is the caremongering, the helping of others, the really stepping up to try and make a difference. And we see that kind of everybody, you know, across any different um area of uh, neighbors helping neighbors, people stepping up on Facebook book groups, people delivering pizzas to the hospital. Um, being able to step out of your zone and think about what could I do to help someone? Is there someone on my street or a neighbor who needs some help? That's something that's really has a lot of payback for our own mental uh, well being and health is helping others. Um, having a routine, so if you're you are at home all the time Um, Making sure you you put in place a routine where you take a walk, you take breaks, you have exercise, you look after your self-care in terms of your sleep and your nutrition um, and your physical fitness. Uh, Finding other ways to have a sense of meaning and purpose, Um, you know, whatever way that is for you. So some people may be, you know, using it as a way to connect back to what's important to them and their values and how they want to be spending this time. also to just take it one day at a time. Every day does change, and we will get through this. There is an other side. It may be a new normal for quite a while, as the Prime Minister said, um, but we will get through it. And as we get through it, we'll be stronger as a community, um, as, a, as a country, because going through stress like this builds resilience. And so coming through this, we are going to have things clarified in different ways in terms of what's important, um, what's our purpose, um, you know, and we may all be touched by loss by this if we have loved ones who are affected um, or uh, or losing loved ones due to the illness or having loved ones working in um, risky uh, work settings. So um, that's another thing to remember is that we will get through this and to get through it, engaging your support. So I see lots of people using Zoom or different platforms to connect socially because we are social creatures. And so trying to engage um, some social connection and, and to share if you are struggling um, and finding it hard to you know use your supports, lean on them. And um, and if you're finding that's not enough, like every day you're feeling really sad or really worried, um, then to really maybe seek professional help. And so we do have at St. Joe's, um, we have our Connect um, mental health uh, program that connects people to the resources they need to help them with their mental health. Uh, we're a leader in this area. We're here to help the community. There's also the Canadian Mental Health Association that's there to help our community. So there are professionals out there uh, willing to and, and available to provide support if people need more. Um, than they currently have If if they are finding they're struggling with coping.
0: Our guest this afternoon is Randy McCabe, Clinical Director, Mood, Anxiety, and Seniors Mental Health at St. Joseph's Healthcare Hamilton. Uh, you mentioned pizza, and I know that Toppers Pizza on Upper James delivered some pizza to St. Joe's Hospital on Charlton and the West Fifth Campus today uh, as a lunchtime gift and, and, and a thank you. So, you know, those are one of the things that businesses uh, in our community are doing. I know individuals have done that, whether it's a, through a Zoom call just to bring people together. The Arkells have done a phenomenal job, and you know, singing songs to graduates or just uh, uh, hosting guitar lessons on, uh, on Instagram. It's really um, uh, an individual or a group effort in terms of kind of uh, just picking each other up. You mentioned loss as well, and we know that with the COVID-19 pandemic, funerals aren't really a thing. They, they just can't be because we can't uh, physically be together. How do people deal with that loss knowing that they can't honor their family member or, or a friend the way that they have come to know?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's a real hard one. Um, and, and in some cases, they may not even be able to be present, you know, as much as they want with their loved one, If especially if they're in long-term care and they're near the yeah, end. They may be allowed to come for the last part of it, but um, we're not even able to visit loved ones in long-term care right now. I have my own mom in, in long-term care. It's very hard. And I see people doing different things. So some people I've seen had a Zoom kind of celebration of life or other people are postponing to, um, you know, a later date to, to plan to have a real celebration of life for the person. Um, there are people having maybe more closer, uh, sh- uh, smaller ceremonies where there's social distancing, just a few family members at a time. Um, so people are finding different ways to do it. Uh, but, you know, you're right. It's it's very different than what we're used to doing when we all come together as a group um, to really mourn a person's passing and really remember them. And, you know, so I think those are uh, people going through those losses also may need extra support uh, just to manage grief and and the emotions that may come at this time with not being able to be present the way you wanted to at the person's um, end of life as well as after the rituals we have as a society in saying goodbye as we have to do these in a different way in this new kind of normal we're in.
0: Randy you mentioned your mom is in a long-term care facility how is she handling things and, and how are you and your family handling that?
2: Yeah, well it's very hard cuz I haven't been able to see her for, you know, probably going on 2 months since this all began. She's in a great place. They're doing an amazing job. I know they're trying to do everything they can to keep everybody safe and part of that is us not visiting. So they're they're doing virtual visits and we're doing those at St. Joe's Healthcare as well where we have virtual visits with families when they can't come in to see their loved ones and that that does help being able to you know see and reach out um in a virtual way uh but certainly it's very hard and you feel guilty and you feel sad so i'm just like everybody else struggling with increased uh, kind of uh feelings of um you know sadness and hardship at this time i think you know we're all in that same storm together
0: Last one for you, because we got to run, is, is one of the biggest factors of our strained mental health at this time, the fear or the anxiety of the unknown? Because we don't know when this is going to end. We know we don't know if it's going to end anytime soon. Is there a second wave? What does that mean? That unknown, I mean, there's a lot of fear to that.
2: Absolutely. Like, uh, anxiety and fear are, are really adaptive emotions, and we have them to help us motivate and prepare for the unknown. So, That's good when it's, you know, every day you have an unknown and then it comes and you're prepared. But with this one, it's kind of a prolonged unknown and every day reveals kind of a new unknown and a new uncertainty. And so we do see a prolonging of the anxiety and fear. And for some people, a real exacerbation, especially if they already had struggles with anxiety to begin with, this really may put them, you know, over a limit. And so um, and that's where that coming to taking things day by day and just reassuring yourself, you know, we're going to get through this. We're going to get through it stronger we're going to be changed by this, but, um, you know, going through, we're all in it together. And so really that. The community response and, and what you said about you know all the people giving back and donating. You know I thank you to Topper's Pizza and all the people who've given wonderful donations to St. Joe's. My own neighbors on my street keep bringing me meals to thank me and my partner who also works in healthcare at the General. Um, you know that makes them feel good because they're they're helping out and I think that makes a big difference when people um, you know are able to give to others during this time. It gives the person they're receiving a lift and it also makes them feel good that they're, they're they feel like they're doing something and i think that's important to dealing with anxiety is feeling like okay well we're all in this together what can i do that will make this a better situation that maybe help other people in the community who might be struggling
0: well said randy appreciate the time thanks for everything that you're doing and uh, continue uh, best of luck uh, on this unprecedented journey that we're all on
2: thanks very much thanks for having me on
1: you're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: The Canadian Football League is asking the federal government for up to 150 million dollars in financial assistance due to the COVID 19 pandemic, and the question now is, should the government help? CFL Commissioner Randy Ambrosie says the league's proposal involves three phases. Phase number one is 30 million dollars right now. That's to manage the impact that the novel coronavirus outbreak has had on league business. We all know that the league has been suspended, reached the start of training camps has been suspended. The schedule was supposed to kick off on June the 11th, but games will not be played until at least early June. And given the three-pronged attack that the province laid out earlier in the week in the plan to return to work, the, quote, foreseeable future was underlined and bolded uh, when talking about large gatherings, i.e. sporting events and concerts. So those events with fans in attendance won't be coming back anytime soon. Part two of the CFL's request is additional assistance for an abbreviated regular season up to, and this is part number three, up to another $120 million in the event of a lost 2020. Campaign. So that's 150 million dollars. So what did the Prime Minister have to say about this today? Well he says he's looking at the request through the same lens the government is using to assess requests from other businesses.
1: We are uh, continuing to engage with uh, various sectors, industries and organizations who are facing disruptions because of COVID-19. The CFL has approached us about support. Uh, We know it's important to them. We know it's important to many Canadians and those discussions are ongoing.
0: It is important but And here's the but. Should the government bail out a sports league? Let's chat with uh, another sports guy. His name is Scott Radley, host of The Scott Radley Show, weeknights, 6 to 8 here on 900 CHML. Also your favorite columnist at The Hamilton Spectator. And Scott joins us now. Scott, good afternoon. How are you?
1: I'm well, Rick. How are you? Not
0: too bad at all. In addition to his dual duties, Scott is also the host of and the brain behind an exciting new venture that, uh, Scott, you have launched in conjunction with myself, Bubba O'Neill from CHCH, as well as Steve Milton from the Hamilton Spectator, and we call it, uh, what do we call it again? Home Games. Home Games Games Hamilton. (laughs) I I lost it.
1: We're all at at home. We're doing it from home. So it's a YouTube channel, and uh, uh, we're actually talking about this very topic on uh, the one that will be up in about an hour or so uh, about the CFL and whether they should get a well, is the word giant too strong? A word? I think $150 million is a giant bailout, isn't it?
0: I, I would classify it as giant, yes. Maybe, I mean, it's not in the billions, but still it's $150 million. That's a lot of money. Should the government, and here's the question everyone's asking, should the government help the CFL?
1: So there's a couple things um, in play here. And again, you can see, uh, we won't have time to talk about everything. There'll be more at that YouTube channel. Uh, shameless plug, shameless plug. But anyway, um, <laughs> Look, there's, there's a number of things at play. One is if they do this for the CFL, despite the fact that clearly, Rick, I think you and I both agree, the CFL is different from a lot of leagues in this country. There is a history there that is unique. Uh, there is a cultural aspect that is unique. The Grey Cup is unique. But you still potentially open the door to every other league, sports organization, tournament host, uh, arts Council, um, everybody then, I would think, comes with their handout and says, wait a second, if the CFL gets a bailout because things are tough for them, we're also facing tough times. Uh, where's our money? And so I'm sure that's something that is going to be considered by the government, which is, yeah, it's $150 million for this league, but what's the total once we deal with everybody? And if we don't deal with everybody, how does that play? If all of a sudden we tell the people who, I don't know, run the Rogers Cup tennis tournament that I'm sorry, we're giving it to the CFL, but not to you, now what? So it's a really complicated thing. Um, On the other hand, Rick, you know what? I mean, in the grand scale of things, when you're talking, I think we're already hearing the government has already paid out $120 billion or something in bailouts. What's another $150 million, I suppose, is the answer some might give. So, I mean, I don't know where they're going to go with this.
0: There are two sides to this uh, debate optically as well. Number one, the optics of a government giving money to a professional sports league uh, because their season is potentially going to be canceled. In light of what is going on with the COVID-19 pandemic, and I mentioned on Home Games Hamilton on the YouTube channel that you know Fort McMurray has flooding issues, you know there's uh, Nova Scotia has you know their their uh, shooting rampage from a while ago. I know they're setting up victim assistance funds and and the like. Optically, this does not look good for the federal government to get involved. On the flip side, if the CFL is the only professional sports league to have its hand out, it does not look good for the league either.
1: No, uh, no, that's true. Now, if the CFL was the only league that came with its handout, the government probably dodges a massive bullet on this one because then they can say, yes, there's cultural implications here. So sure, we'll do this to help. But you're right. If, if, it doesn't. Let me back up. It raises some questions about the financial viability of this league that I, I think a lot of us had sort of put aside a bit because we haven't had a story all that often or certainly not like they used to be about franchises folding. And so we sort of forget, we go, okay, the CFL may be on pretty solid footing. And then this comes up and look, the COVID thing the the situation we're in is, is not what anybody expected, but other leagues have either got a war chest or they have enough of a TV contract that they could weather this, or they have some other means of generating revenue or just really deep pocketed owners and the CFL has none of those right now by the sounds of it. So it, if it hadn't been covid, might there have been another situation that arose at some point that caused problems for the league. I don't know, but it, you're right. It, it it's not a it's not an ideal look for the league. Uh but then again, Rick, we've known that this league from everything we've heard is not been wildly profitable if profitable at all profitable at all for franchises for some time now so i'm not sure this is a huge surprise is it to you is it a huge surprise that in difficult times the cfl might run into problems
0: no because we've been we've been here before i mean probably most recently with the argos a few years ago when uh the 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 co-owners cinnamon and sokolowski basically uh, could not find an owner You know the the Ty Cats and Argos of of 2003, both bankrupt in the same season. Bill mentioned you know earlier on in his show the '96 Grey Cup in Hamilton. Jeff Giles, the commissioner at the time, not knowing how he was going to pay everyone uh, after the Grey Cup. This league has had a checkered financial. Uh, spreadsheet, if I will, over the last number of decades, and so, yeah, I'm not surprised at all that they're looking for some kind of handout. The first thing I thought of, however, when I heard about this story last night was, can't employees of the CFL, whether it's, you know, stadium concession people, maybe even some players, front office staff at various uh, cities across this country, can they not just access the CERB, the Canada Emergency Response Benefit? Is that not the first step as a league, I know, hey, we're, we're going to scrap the rest of this season. We'll see you next year, hopefully. Cannot they, can't they just do that?
1: I thought the same thing, so I went and did some looking up on that uh, because I had the exact same uh, thought. That program, there's two prongs to it. Uh, one is that your company or your business has to have lost at least 30% of its business uh, up until May at some point, and also it runs only until June. Well, the CFL can't argue that it's lost 30% of its revenue prior to May because there's no league going on or there's no games going on right now. And before the league even gets started, this program apparently is due to expire. Now, it could be extended, in which case, yeah, I I would think that if you get into July and August and this program is extended, you can certainly make the case that our business is down 30% in revenues and we can apply. I, I would see no reason they couldn't. But as for right now, they're in a bit of a pickle. Let me throw one other thing at you, Rick. And this is one that, unfortunately, it dawned on me after we taped the uh, the home <laughs> games thing. But where is the part of this country where the CFL is strongest?
0: Well, it's out, it's out west. There's no doubt out about west. That.
1: Where is the part of this country that the federal liberal government has its biggest problems getting votes and the most dissent among the people towards the government yeah the prairies in bc so you've got one of two options here then you can look at this two different ways one is that you say well the liberals may not be all that inspired to throw money at a league where the beating heart is out west where they have no seats or you turn around and you say, well, maybe the Liberals look at this as an opportunity to try and gain some votes or gain some traction with the people out West. Don't forget, right before COVID hit, the Liberals had promised Alberta a bailout of its own for the oil industry. And the oil situation is a massive headbutting between the West, a lot of the West anyway, and Ottawa. So uh, there are two ways, and I guarantee you, whatever decision ultimately is made in this, it will be played somewhat as politics. And if the federal government decides not to bail out the CFL, there will be cries coming from out west that, boy, if they a hue and cry, if the, if the league was being driven by a team in Quebec, oh, the, the, the federal government would have come to its aid. Look, whether that's true or fair or not, There is no way that when you have the strength of the league out west that politics is not going to become a part of this.
0: 100% agree. And, you know, I come down to when I look at this $150 million figure that the CFL is wanting to play its 2020 campaign, obviously without fans in the stands, or at least for the majority of their games, my thinking is... Uh, the league wants this handout because they've already said Commissioner Randy Ambrosie has already said they're not going to be able to repay the government in cash. They'll be able to repay it in "quote unquote" gifts in kind or initiatives in kind to showcase, uh, you know, players out in the community doing different things, which they already do. But at the end of the day, this money, to me, says that the league is going to use this to pay its players, to pay its staff, to run the season without fans in the stands because if there are no fans in the stands they take a huge financial hit. This is probably the most of the major professional sports leagues in in North America the most reliant on ticket sales. Before we let you go though, I do yeah. want to switch gears a little bit to talk about Major League Baseball. And there was a story in the USA today yesterday from Bob Nightingale basically projecting that MLB wants to start its season in late June or early July with three realigned divisions and hopefully play about 100 games without any fans in attendance. Do you see this working?
1: Well, they could because they've got such huge TV deals. This is the opposite of the CFL. I mean, look, we've talked about this before. Any league that can get up and operating right now when there is this vacuum of, of content and networks are dying for something to put on there because, quite honestly, a few of us have already watched every single thing that's on Netflix um you you're they're dying for some so to get anything in front of the public's eyes would be a windfall, and the networks would be delighted to have that. So if you can do it, yeah, yeah, But let me just go back for one second because I know you got to go but one second to the CFL thing because there's one other issue that I, I and maybe you have a better answer because I haven't heard all of it. hundred and fifty million dollars for a season that's not going to be held. So are you interpreting this then? that Randy Ambrosie is saying we're going to play the season anyway with no fans and this will cover it or when he says no season and we need 150 million dollars what's that 150 million going to cover if you've got no players to pay no coaches to pay some fun office staff that I guess have to be paid because they're still working why 150 million i'm a little puzzled by the number of where that's going to go to I'm like, very or is that just yeah I'm, pay I'm off Loans on on stadiums or what? I, I don't know where that what that money covers if you're not paying players.
0: I I thought so too. Rent rental of facilities because this uh, upwards of 120 of that 150 million would be used in the event of a lost 2020 campaign. So yep. no games, paying no players. Obviously, they only get paid to play. So yeah, this money would be I guess to pay other expenses, which is I find remarkable.
1: Well, it, it is remarkable because that suggests. I mean, the the salary cap in the CFL is, what, 5, give or take 5, 5. million? 5.7. Okay, times 9, so there's 45 million. So you're paying all your players for 45 million. There's a salary cap on coaches and, and front office staff, or like football operations people. So let's say we're going to go up to now 60. On, on the So $60 million of revenue has to go to paying the players. That means you've got $90 million in other revenues, the other expenses that you have to pay, to cover the rest of your year, that seems very high to me.
0: Let's not forget the TV deal that they have is worth about forty million. So you take that off the equation, and now you got a, a boatload of cash. And I'm not sure what they're going to do with it.
1: I look. I, I know. I, I trust this is not the case, but you're going to have people as well, Rick. I think as this thing goes on, if, if this thing drags on, saying, "Wait a second, are are they asking for money to? just cover losses or to prop up a league that wants i mean look i i don't even want to throw that out there because it it seems unfair and i'm sure it's not right i'm sure it's not right but just i'd say the 150 million seems like a very large number when you consider the other costs. and i'm going to be really interested in the days ahead to see what that actually means and where that money would be going why do you need that not say 50 million or 60 million
0: yeah, it's. Uh, I'd love to see the balance sheet on how they came up with the $150 million. Scott, appreciate the time. Thanks, as always. And uh, we'll catch up with you later on tonight uh, during the Scott Radley Show between uh, 6 and uh, 7 tonight because we have the town hall at 7 o'clock.
1: Absolutely. Thanks, Rick.
0: Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show weeknights uh, 6 to 8, uh, except for Wednesdays when we do have the virtual town hall from the city of Hamilton, also columnist with the Hamilton Spectator, and the host and brainchild behind uh, Home Games Hamilton.
1: You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: This is vitally important, especially considering what has happened in long-term care facilities, not only in this province, but across the country. Ontario's patient ombudsman's office says it is seeking whistleblower complaints from family members and staff at long-term care homes amid the COVID-19 pandemic. The office sent out a release on Monday saying that the amount of complaints from both residents and workers from LTCs in Ontario signals a real crisis in the system. Marissa Lennox is the Chief Policy Officer with CARP, the Canadian Association of Retired Persons, and joins us now. Marissa, how are you today?
3: I'm well, thank you. How are you? <laughs> Not
0: too bad. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, long-term long-term care homes, long-term care facilities, retirement homes, they have been hit extremely hard during this pandemic. Were they ill-prepared for this?
3: Oh, without a doubt, they were ill-prepared. You know, we mustn't presume that the incidents we're seeing are directly related to homes being overwhelmed because of COVID, because it's just not the case. Many of the challenges we're seeing today uh, existed long before, and they will persist uh, as long as nothing is done to to fix them.
0: What are some of those challenges?
3: A laundry list, really. It's it's uh, it's really, it's everything from staffing to an inability to effectively quarantine residents when there are outbreaks, um, there were shortages with testing equipment and personal protective gear. Um, and so many of these, and, and then of course, not to mention uh, a lack of training for staff. Um, so there, there's a whole host of issues that really need addressing, addressing in long-term care, and um, and, you know, this is something that advocates have been shouting about, I think, for, for some time, uh, the need to really look at long-term care um, and, and and flip it on its head, um, really challenge the status quo and turn it into a place where you would want to live because it's just not that today. Some homes do perform better than others, um, but as we're seeing with COVID-19, there are some real pinch points, some real deficiencies in the system that have that have caused the, the death rate that we're seeing today.
0: And, and this might be an unanswerable question, but because those deficiencies have been around for a while, is there some sort of culpability uh, from the provincial level or, 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 or staff at these facilities?
3: Well, there ought to be. Um, there are certainly class action lawsuits that are, that are going on right now um, and likely more to come. Um, We do know where homes have performed poorly and inspections have been performed. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult to hold homes accountable. Maybe they'll issue warnings at the ministry level. Maybe they'll levy fines. But the likelihood of a home demonstrating very gross negligence, as was seen with the Maison Heron home getting shut down is, you know, that home is still in operation today so let's just say every avenue is exhausted before a home does officially get shut down does it should it should it require
0: Marissa Lennox is the Chief Policy Advisor with CARP, uh, joining us here on the Scott Thompson Show on 900CHML. Rick in for Scott today. Uh, So Ontario's Patient Ombudsman's Office is going to be seeking some complaints from not only family members, but staff as well at long-term care facilities. I'm going to guess that there's going to be a slew of complaints coming in. The, the, The one thing that I'm most interested in, because we know that's going to happen, is what's the response going to be? What is going to happen after those complaints come in? What's your best guess?
3: No, you know, this is interesting. It's a, it's positive, I guess that there's sort of this proactive solicitation for feedback, but you know, it it's really it's a, it's another avenue beyond where people can already go to complain about challenges in long term care homes. They can complain to the ministry, as I mentioned earlier, and the ministry would conduct inspections. They can also complain to the Ontario Ombudsman. Um, so I, you know, I would question what will come of this other than a report highlighting much of what we already know. Um, Most of the complaints we've seen so far around chronic shortage of staffing, protective measures not being in place, transparent communications with homes. We've heard devastating stories of people trying to get in touch with their loved one, trying to learn whether or or not their loved one is tested positive and not hearing back from the home. Um, so, you know, an ombudsman, it's, it's good because it's meant to be sort of this neutral third party for citizens to go without having to worry about repercussions. On the other hand, you raised the point, well, what will come of this? One of the challenges we've seen with other ombudsmen is that they often lack the teeth needed to create real change. Um, so where is the accountability going to come from? Um, so as I said, more avenues to, for people to complain. Perhaps that could be a little bit confusing, but it's good. Um, but I think you know, when we think about solutions, again, what it boils down to is challenging the status quo, making sure we're examining every possible innovative approach. And I'm not sure that the patient ombudsman has the authority to do that. In fact, I know that uh, they do not. In fact, there isn't even an ombudsman in place right now. It's just an office operating at this point.
0: You make some great points. It's really uh, you know, a toothless watchdog. and, And other than perhaps publicly shaming uh, those responsible for what has occurred, uh, there, there really isn't going to be, and I, I can say it quite honestly, there isn't going to be any real repercussions. The provincial government not too long ago, I think it was last week, uh, made some measures or at least an announcement to say, uh, listen, PSWs, you don't have to work uh, in in three or four different long-term care homes. We're going to give you a raise. We'll keep you in one spot. Is Is that a start at least?
3: It's a start, but it's a temporary measure that's been put in place at the Ontario level. Um, I think we really do need to look at PSWs and how we value them. I think it's devastating that many of them work two, three jobs just to make ends meet when homes have more than, uh, you know, the, the, the need. There's certainly the demand there to hire them full time. There's certainly a demand for this. Um, and yet we're not seeing it and people are forced to work part time shifts. Sometimes they wake up at 6 a.m. and they, and they don't finish until 11 p.m. at night working through from, you know, home to home or maybe they're working for different home care organizations. And, you know, it's a real challenge. I think we also need to look at what they're paid. Ultimately we need to make this an industry that's more attractive for people to come into. Um, and so that we can, you know not, not only attract people, but retain them. There's a high, high turnover rate among PSWs all across Canada because of burnout and just the working conditions that they're that they're placed in.
0: All great points. Marissa really appreciate the time today. My pleasure. Thanks for having
1: me. You too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: We're staying at homes. We're going to the grocery store. We have to, you know, be a couple of meters apart from the next individual in line. We're waiting to get into stores. We can't really visit any outdoor uh, parks or, or waterfalls here in the city. We have to stay inside. Well, one thing we can do, I think, if they're still open, because I haven't been to one in a while, is go to a drive-in movie theater. Now, you can't go to an actual theater and you know, grab our popcorn and sit down next to each other and all have a great laugh at a good comedy or sob at a tearjerker. But I guess we can go into the drive through or the drive-in. Is this the big boom for drive-ins once again? Well, let's ask Bill Brio, blogger. Brio TV is the website, and he joins us now. Bill, how are you? I'm uh, well, Rick. How are you doing? Not too bad. Is this the boon that the drive-in theaters have been waiting for?
4: Uh, From what I read, I guess it is so far in uh, parts of the U.S. I know Florida and uh, other states have left their theaters open and started early. But, you know, in Ontario, um, from what I understand, there's about 16 drive-ins that still exist. And most of those are really May to October businesses, right? They're not generally open um, in the wintertime. Um, and they're not open now, none of them. Uh, you know, they're observing the, the province's uh, suggestion order that uh, ga- you know, crowds don't gather. So despite the fact you can sit in your car, and I know in, in some of the states, the drivers leave a space in between each car to make it even more distance. Um, the problem, I guess, is they're using the washroom or going to the snack bar. There's still going to be uh, cl- close proximity to other people
0: i guess the one proviso if they were allowed to open is listen there's no concessions there's no washrooms you got to either hold it or you know (laughs) wait till you get home right (laughs) right
4: um yeah and you know there's other things some you know in the summertime parents like remember when i was a kid you know my parents would take we would go to a drive-in theater they used to have one in orangeville right in the middle of orangeville and um You know, I'd go play on the swings and stuff right in front of the screen. You know, that's where all the kids would go before the movie started. (laughs) Uh, And that must have been an insurance nightmare. I think everybody, they all had those metal machines. You'd you'd zip around with your friends and somebody would break an arm. So, uh, But, uh, yeah, none of them are open right now, and um, it'll be interesting to see how quickly they open and whether they're very popular.
0: There is such a great nostalgia when you think of the drive-ins. I mean, you think of... Uh, you know the 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 50s, 60s, 70s, certainly the 80s when I went into the drive uh, drive-in with my parents to watch you know whatever the movie of the the, the day was. But it really brings back that you know the, that good old days kind of feel.
4: Yeah, I agree, Rick. And I used to go. You know, my family had a cottage up the Bruce Peninsula, and in um, Owen Sound there was a drive-in that stayed open for about 50 years. It just closed about three or four years ago. And I would go uh, when my kids were young, and the big attraction was the old-fashioned movie trailers they showed in between the features. To me, that was the attraction. They were nostalgic. They would have little things like, don't drive away with our speakers, you know, and Mr. Businessman, you can advertise on our screen. (laughs) Um, I loved all of that stuff. And um, nowadays, even when you do go to a drive-in, it's hard to find that. I know that the five drive-in in Oakville is still open. They have three screens. Uh, there's a great drive in in uh, um, Stony Creek, I believe, mm-hmm. uh, yep. the Stardust, and Guelph has the Mustang. Um, so they're still out there, and hopefully they'll open. My favorite, and it was like the one in Orangeville, is in Hanover, Ontario. And it's um, a beautiful little drive in, it's well preserved, uh, and um, the screen is actually a house. People really? live inside. The screen—it's a, a narrow, skinny place like the one in Orangeville. So it's um, a sweet little nostalgic place to see a movie.
0: Wow, that is amazing. If drive-ins are allowed to open, I know we're kind of you know playing the if game in. Um, but because of the rising popularity in the U.S., um, do you see movie makers, producers saying, "Hey, let, let's launch our movie in a drive-in theater?"
4: It depends. You know, it's, it, there aren't that many of them, and um, that's the problem right now. Even if the drive-ins were open, the James Bond movie was yanked out of uh, distribution. You know, It was supposed to open in March. There was another Fast and Furious coming. So I know that the uh, drive-in owners, they don't have new product to show right now. Um, I think if you showed beach blanket bingo movies from the 60s, that I think you might get a crowd. Now people are just starved to get out and do something. You could build nostalgia nights around... Uh, comedies or the beach kind of drive in fair that people used to watch. Um, but that's one problem is what do you show? And uh, it's the same problem with the regular theaters.
0: Yeah, it's a great point. Bill, appreciate the time. It's uh, always great looking back uh, and uh, in, in some cases looking ahead with you as well. And glad to hear that you're doing well as well.
4: You too, Rick. Stay safe and hope to talk to you soon.
0: You got it. Bill Brio, blogger, Brio TV. Check it out uh, online. That's B R I O U X. Dot TV great website if you are a fan of TV and movies and who isn't I got to share this odds and end story with you out of Colorado it took 30 years are you a lottery player if you are you will appreciate this story it took 30 years 30 of playing the same numbers but a Colorado man has won the lottery perseverance I say but not only did he win the lottery he won the lottery twice Yes, Colorado lottery officials say the man only identified as Joe B won two $1 million Powerball jackpots on March the 25th. How did he do it, you ask? Well, the tickets were bought at two different stores, one in the morning, one in the evening. And he played the same numbers, and they both came out. I'd like to see the odds on that. This is a great story as well out of Cookville, Tennessee. A dog in Tennessee must have thought that uh, it would never return home. It went missing for two months after a tornado destroyed its home. But 54 days after the Australian Shepherd disappeared, she's been found. She was hiding between two buildings on Sunday. Eric and Faith Johnson say they are happy and grateful to have Bella back. Uh, and you could say they were doubly grateful since it was Bella who alerted them to the March Twister that leveled their home. And uh, the best news of all this is that uh, Eric and Faith Johnson plan to rebuild their house. All right, time for celebrity birthdays for this date, April the twenty-ninth. Actor Daniel Day-Lewis is sixty-three. Actress Michelle Pfeiffer is 62. Actress Eve Plum, you know the name, Jan Brady from the Brady Bunch, is also 62. Singer Carney Wilson of Wilson Phillips is 52. Actress Uma Thurman is the big 5-0 today. So is Tennis Hall of Famer Andre Agassi. NHL All-Star forward Jonathan Taves, three-time Stanley Cup winner, is 32 today. Celebrating his 66th birthday, is Jerry Seinfeld.
4: I said, how long?
0: Nine years. 180
4: episodes. You gave it up, right? I did, sir. They didn't cancel you. You canceled them. You're not aware of this? No, I'm, just, I'm asking you. Yeah. You think I got canceled? Are you under the impression I, that I, I got canceled? You, I hurt you, Jerry? I thought don't, that was pretty well documented. Don't
1: most shows go down a little? Most people do also. But... <laughs> Yeah, no, I I went off the air as the number one show on television, Larry. Do you know who I am? (laughs) Jewish guy, Brooklyn. Yes. Yes. Okay. 75 million viewers last episode. Boy, you
4: don't take it so bad.
1: Well, that's a a big difference between being canceled and being number one. (laughs) Okay, I'm sorry.
4: (laughs) We'll be right back. B-movie (laughs) opens... B movie opens. a resume
3: in here for me? movie opens so tomorrow.
0: <laughs> we'll be right back. Great clip from years gone by in the Larry King Show on CNN. Jerry Seinfeld giving Larry the gears. Also born on this date, Duke Ellington, Emperor Hirohito of Japan, Pro Football Hall of Fame coach George Allen, Canadian golfer Al Belding, and a race car driver Dale Earnhardt Sr., also born on this date. If you're celebrating a birthday, have a happy one today. Huge thanks to producers Liz Russell and Will Erskine. Great job, as always. My name's Rick Samprin. Scott Thompson is back tomorrow here. On on The Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML.
1: The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to three on 900 CHML.
0: The Scott Thompson Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcast from. I'm Rick Samperin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.